Hi, I'm Seth Roseman. And I'm Jonathan Fuller. And welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it. Because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. What? (laughs) People can be listening to this at any time. Yeah. So maybe they're listening to in the morning. I just feel like you should say good morning. (laughs) I disagree. (laughs) It's evening here. Just say whatever you want. (laughs) Pre-evening. Pre-evening. Bonsoir. (laughs) I have a question for you. Okay, I'm ready. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to have to hunt for all of your food or have to grow all of it in your backyard garden? Oh, man. Well, either option probably leaves me not living very long. I don't have confidence in my ability to do either thing. Um, I think I would find much more value in growing my own food. You know, the meat industry is problematic. I think if you're going to eat meat, hunting is the best way to go about it. But also, I feel like I'd find much more satisfaction, like the hard work that would be involved. Like if I knew that my life depended on it, I think I would learn more about gardening, put the work in. I think, I, I think I'd find a little more satisfaction in that. And probably, you know, sticking to the vegetable, fruits and vegetables, probably be a little healthier for me too, I would say. I had the same thought that either way leaves my lifespan pretty short. Yeah, we have to start option. recording more episodes of the podcast to make it last as long as possible. Exactly. I, I think I'm with you. I think I would have to try and grow it, which I don't have a very green thumb. Yeah, me neither. But I don't think I have a, a prayer trying to hunt it. So I think I, my only option is to try and grow it. Yeah, exactly. What do you think? What what would have to be a staple in your garden? Oh, in tomatoes. Tomatoes? Yeah. I feel like that's pretty easy. Like, because almost everybody I know who has a garden, like they even even the people who I don't think are very good gardeners, kind of like me, they can grow tomatoes. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like I it has to be. It's a pretty common gardening, like gardening product. I just generally don't really like tomatoes that much. Maybe an unpopular opinion, but I, I think I would go with carrots. I really like carrots, and I feel like it would be really satisfying to just pull one out of the ground and just shove it right in my mouth. I'd probably wash it first. Okay, but okay, Bugs Bunny. <laughs> I could also try potatoes. Potatoes? 
I, I, I would think that I think potatoes might be like a little more doable too. And I also think, I don't know, I know nothing about gardening. But tomatoes, it seems like it's prime picking for for animals to come along and eat them. Mm. But potatoes are underground. I feel like that's pretty safe. Yeah, unless an animal could dig. Could dig, true. Which is like worms. Most, most of them. <laughs> Sorry for the, so the for the sirens in the background in the last few minutes. I guess something's happening here in Ashland, Virginia that someone needs to respond to. So that was a good question, though. I, I'm glad that grocery stores still exist, though. Me too. Oh <laughs> Jonathan, would you read our text for this week? Yeah, I'd be happy to. This is coming from Luke chapter 11 beginning in verse 53 through chapter 12, verse 3. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. So why did you go with the New International Version this week, Seth? One of the reasons that I like the NIV is I think it offers a good balance between its readability and kind of the way it follows the original manuscript. It offers something that's really in between. So I think in, in that case, it's a good compromise. I also think it's often helpful to, to reference the NIV because it's the second most popular translation that's out there right now. At least that's that's what one relatively recent survey said, if I can think of it off the top of my head. The most common is the, the King James is still the most common, and the NIV is the second most popular. So I often mm. think it can be helpful for me to read the NIV uh, and look up a particular passage in it and see like what what would most people have in their head when they read this? What version might sure. they have heard? Did you notice anything when you were reading that jumped out at you? There were a couple moments where the way there's just some language that really struck me, which felt kind of, it felt kind of like an exaggeration almost in a way, but just this kind of over amplifying of these particular facts. So the first one was in chapter 11, verse 53, when the Pharisees and the teachers of law began to oppose Jesus fiercely and to besiege him with questions. And so I'm getting this imagery of like a class of like curious second graders, like surrounding their teacher after something interesting, just keep asking her over and over again, like random questions about all this stuff. And imagine, I don't know, the way that that's framed makes me, makes me feel like Jesus might've been a little panicked when it was happening. <laughs> but then the other option was, at the beginning of chapter 12, the crowd was so big that they were trampling on one another. And I'm wondering why the, I don't know, those, those, 
that language there and the in the verse earlier I was just talking about it's so over the top you know I don't want to put the expectations of like my modern day what does history look like expectations I don't know if these things actually happened or if this is just the way that the author of Luke was writing about it I don't know it just really stood out to me though that that language that felt just like a little bit excessive when describing what was happening. I think at the beginning, when you talk about how, how intense it sounds, they're trying to, to catch Jesus. I actually think that that's terminology that they use in hunting. They're trying to, he's, Jesus is the prey. Yeah. They're just like setting, setting a bunch of traps. Um, And then it's, and it's also funny to me that, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are setting up this whole scenario and a crowd is coming around, but presumably they're still there. And then while they're still there, Jesus just talks a bunch of crap about him <laughs> to his disciples. Uh, if that, if that kind of thing was happening today where a person was talking to people about other people while they were in the room, I think we'd be really uncomfortable, but that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. You're right. I think, the way that he he talks about the Pharisees just right in front of them is really fascinating. Well, with that, what do you think the story of this text is? I've been trying to think about this text in light a little bit of what comes before it. One of the few things that I don't like about the Revised Common Lectionary is sometimes I think it cuts us off from its immediate context. So what comes right before this in Luke is these woes against the Pharisees. Mm. So he's right before this, he's already bad mouthing them. So I think you're right when you, when you say that they're still there and he's talking crap about them. I think that's exactly it. And one of his charges is that they're hypocrites, which I think we start to see that in 12 too. Mm-hmm. That there's nothing concealed that's, will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. But I also think one of the keys is that just like you notice the crowds there and they're like trampling on each other. There's a bunch of people there and they all want to get to Jesus and they're all excited. And it's about Jesus popularity. Yeah. Which in this moment in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic is just adding a little bit of anxiety to my experience of this particular passage. Yeah, that the energy of around Jesus is really palpable. And I, I think maybe that going back to the, the language that stood out to me, maybe that's what Luke or the author of Luke is trying to communicate. You know, it's not just a crowd of many thousands. It's a crowd that's so excited that they're trampling on one another. That emphasis, the kind of reiteration of the same kind of idea to add another layer to how significant that detail is. The hordes are gathering and are trying to get to Jesus in this, in this time. And now it seems strange because we're we're trying to social distance, right? Keep, keep six feet away from me. But I also think it may have been a little strange then because the way that they think about cleanliness and hygiene isn't to the standards that we think about it. I mean, it's relatively rare in the ancient world for people to bathe. So when people are trampling 
over each other. It may, it may have elicited some of the same responses that we have now. Like, oh, just keep away from me. Is there anything else you noticed when you were reading that you thought that's kind of that's strange? Like that that's a weird construction. I think there's definitely a real contrast that you you mentioned some of this at the end too. There's talking about you know for what what Jesus is going to do is going to be revealing. It's going to shed light. You know that the imagery of light and darkness and things that are hidden or concealed versus those things being revealed that comes through. I don't know, I, I, that, that, that also stuck, stuck out to me, even in the short passage, that there's several references to that kind of contrast. And that contrast really, I think, is maybe trying to get at something about Jesus' understanding of the reign and realm of God, or what Jesus' mission is. I'm not really sure. One thing I want to know about those, those kind of dichotomies mm-hmm look at hidden and then made known dark and daylight in a room and pronounced from the roofs. I think it's often in scripture where we see darkness as categorized as, as bad or in contrast to the light. Mm -hmm. And I just want to lift this up because I think this is one example in which the darkness and the daylight seem to be neutral to me. Mm -hmm. Like it's a dark, about the, it's more about the words and it's more descriptive than it is a value statement. Exactly. Which I think, which I think can be helpful. And one of the things. Yeah. Language is really important. And I think you're right. There are several times in scripture that the theme of light and darkness seems to play into more than just being descriptive. You know, I think even we, we fall into this sometimes saying, you know, this is a black and white issue and not explicitly talking about, about race um but like it's you know using that language to describe something that's clear cut and divided it's almost just a subconscious cultural speak so to say that might be highlighting a a reality that we if we thought about it we really don't want to affirm so i i really appreciate you you mentioning that and highlighting that because um it can be real easy to gloss over those things are we ready to move to What's the point? I think so. I've been thinking about the second part and these dichotomies and the way that Mm -hmm. Jesus thinks about his reign in light of the first part. Because I don't think the setting of Jesus' words is insignificant. That even Mm -hmm. though these people are crawling over one another, I think part of what he might be telling the disciples is that they shouldn't be fooled by their popularity right now. Because I think it's popularity that can breed this desire to, to keep being popular. You get some renown and you're like, I have to keep it. And I'll do anything to keep it. Yeah. Like even to this extent that I'll, I'll act in ways that might be hypocritical. I'll tell one person one thing and somebody else another thing. And they'll never find out. So it's really, and it's really challenging what is valuable when it comes to this kind of a movement. Uh, Because, you know, we get the example of the Pharisees and the the teachers of the law conspiring about something in secret than they're then making public. That they are engaging in front of the crowds to try to prove themselves or to try to catch Jesus in a, in a trap of some kind. 
And at the same time, the disciples are seeing all these people climbing over one another to try to get to Jesus. And they might start thinking, man, this is what this movement's all about. There's this theme in the Gospels, and several of them that I really appreciate. This is actually a verse that stuck with me from high school youth group, because we did an extended series about this idea that I don't remember much about the series itself, but I remember this verse as a result of it. It's from Matthew chapter 12, the second part of verse 34. And it says, for out of the outpouring of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the, the external is deeply connected to the internal. You know, there are a couple different layers there, but you can connect action to inner thought and feeling and perspective. You can connect hypocrisy to it too, because when you say one thing, but feel a different way, you know, which is actually your reality, you might be more connected to the thing that you're, that you're saying rather than the thing that the thing you may want to believe that is true about you. I wonder if hypocrisy is the best word. That's how I've been thinking about it in my head. But I also, I just wonder if double-minded is better. Like you talked about which one of these is true. Is someone's actions or are their words true? Kind of the ambiguity of that. Yeah. But I think in hypocrisy, I don't know if that word gets at the ambiguity of it. Words are hard. They are, but it, 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 it's important though. You know, this is, this is really relevant to our last, our last scripture from last week too, a passage from Mark where, you know, Jesus is, this is one of the most consistent messages to Jesus who calls the Pharisees everything from, from hypocrites to a brood of vipers, all these things to really indicate that the way that they're living their lives is really dangerous. But I don't know if it's, if it's a situation where it's dangerous for the Pharisees themselves, or if it's dangerous for the people in the community, the people who they're responsible to lead, maybe it's both, but there's clearly some sense of trouble and problem that goes beyond being maybe immoral or unethical. That's really dangerous about how the Pharisees are acting in this sense. Yeah, I love that question about who's in danger because of their hypocrisy. You know, I, I'm again thinking about thinking about our context right now and thinking about what happens when the people in power are hypocritical and say things that they're are different than what they it's it's never them that face the consequences. It is always those that are already hurting and already on the margins, are already being held down and killed by the system that are further oppressed by bad behavior. Like sure, politicians may have to resign their office. In some cases, they might face criminal charges. But more often than not, the already marginalized are the ones that are experiencing the greatest pain. And those in power are really just looking at how they can save face. It's a lot like some Pharisees who would try and catch Jesus, right, in a word game or like in a trap of some sort. Clearly, I mean, it's clearly dangerous for everyone because the Pharisees are living in a way that's less than ideal, that's less than whole for a human to live. 
and they're suffering as a result, but they're also suffering in a way that imposes suffering on other people who don't have the choice and the option to be double-minded necessarily because they don't have to try to maintain some sense of image or popularity. I think it's helpful in our passage that before Jesus talks about the Pharisees, he begins to speak first to his disciples. I think that I think that's getting at what you're talking about, that those are the people who, although it hurts the Pharisees or even our political leaders, the people who will really be hurt are his disciples, are the people who are already marginalized, mm. who are already suffering. The, the little, the lost, the least, the last, and the lifeless. Mm. I, don't, I don't think it's inconsequential that Jesus kind of turns to his disciples and tells them. Our pastor's most recent sermon was on the story of Jesus sending out the disciples in the middle of the gospel of Matthew saying he was sending sheep out among wolves, sending them out as sheep among wolves. And the point of the sermon in light of George Floyd's death and the subsequent cultural protests about racial injustice and police brutality, we asked the question, what if we're the wolves? What if the church is the wilderness and we are the wolves set to tear people apart who really need to be heard and held and healed? And that's been kind of a theme of my interactions with the Bible lately is to stop affiliating myself with the people who are hurting and to start connecting with the people who are doing some of the hurting. Because as a straight, white, Protestant male, that is the group that I most connect with and correlate with, just from a, more so from a sociological standpoint. Hearing, hearing this text and hearing, hearing what Jesus says to his disciples, I'm reminded that our actions as we hold positions and opportunities with power, they really matter. And hypocrisy, double-mindedness is really dangerous, not just for us because we're not doing the best we can, but for the people whose lives are affected by the decisions that we make on a regular basis. I'll just add that our hypocrisy never goes unnoticed. That there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. And what we've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. That what we've whispered in the ear in the inner room will be proclaimed from the rooftops. I think it's easy to think that when we act in ways that are hypocritical, that people will never notice. But I think that this tells us that quite the opposite. Yeah. And people will be hurt not only by our lies and our double-mindedness, but they will also be hurt when they find out that we perpetrated these lies or hypocrisies or double-mindedness. Double-mindedness has a double hurt when we do it and when the people that we care about find out about Boom. Well said. This was a lot heavier than I thought it was going to be, to be honest. 
I know, but that's that's okay. It's a heavy time. And to go back to what you were saying before about darkness and light, I think one of the things that's so redeeming about that imagery in scripture, even though it can be problematic sometimes, that there are always affirmations that God is always present and may be even more so present, or we may be able to be more aware of the divine presence with us in moments that feel like darkness, moments that feel like isolation. So our heavy conversations are also ones that are necessary and I think are really in tune with what is going on in the world around us right now. It's amazing to see how just these few verses can kind of unlock that kind of stuff for us and for anyone that wants to look in a little bit deeper and just spend a little bit of time with a, a passage on any given day. Maybe this is a good time to pray. Lord God, as the word made flesh, in you there is no hypocrisy. Your words and your deeds are always intertwined. Help us to live authentically, truthfully, and single-minded lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Jonathan, what story are we talking about next week? Next week, we're going to take a look at Psalm 13. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Seth. Thanks for helping me tell it.